Hey there, OCD family community. You want to know what's so cool? With only four episodes dropped, we're already reaching audiences in six different countries across four different continents. I mean, that's amazing. The reach of our international family covers North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. And within North America, we have three different countries dishing up some OCD family goodness, one of those being Canada. And I'm excited to shout out to my northern neighbors because we have a very special guest with us today, Jason Adams. And he is a great example of what I love about creating this community. OCD can make you, your loved one, your relationships feel so alone, but we're not alone. And there are people literally all around the world banding together and better together. So let's get into it because Jason and I really cover a lot of ground and I can't wait for you to hear more. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family, the OCD family that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Thank you for joining us today on the OCD Family Podcast. We have a wonderful guest today. His name is Jason Adams. He is a dad of twins, and he made it here today. So bravo, Jason. <laughs> yeah, we got nap time to get this done. So let's yes. get it done. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. But no, yeah. <laughs> you're kidding, but it's real. The struggle is real because I've been there, not with twins, but I've been there with three kids myself. <laughs> uh, Jason is a teacher. He's a writer, a musician, and he is living with OCD. And so we are just very privileged to hear his story today. And Jason, you know, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, sure. <laughs> Gosh, where should we start? Well, and for anyone listening, the my, my boys are are with are with mom um, in the other room there. They're not by themselves. Don't worry. I haven't left them for sleep and then sat on the computer. <laughs> but uh, anyways, yes. Jason, I wouldn't judge you if you did. I think as a oh, parent, I'm like, good. no, they're they're down. We're good. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, we're getting some relaxing time. And this is really nice for me, too. So, yeah, thanks so much for having me on here. Yeah, yeah I'll just I'll cut to a couple of quick details. I'm from Ontario, Canada, and I'm a teacher and musician up here. But in 2019, I uh, became the father of twin boys. They're now three years old, and they were born lovely and happy and healthy, and they still are. So we're very, very lucky and fortunate that way. Um, and mental health is something that has always been a personal interest, and I would say something that I've studied from a curiosity perspective. I would call it like attempted self-study, but never anything super formal. But then in 2019, shortly after my boys were born, I just started experiencing major spikes in intrusive thoughts and obsessions. And, and I can use those 
concrete definitions now, but at the time I really had no idea what those things were. And it was an interesting time because we had brought our boys home. And as every new parent knows, you, uh, you get into sleep deprivation, you get into routines, you get into trying to make everything work and it's normal to be a little overtired and for things to be a bit hectic around the house. But, uh, I was, um, I was very, very quickly bottoming out with intrusive thoughts about, about harm coming to my boys, about all kinds of different things, which we'll get into a little bit later on. Uh, and eventually my wife and I sat down and kind of said, something's up. We don't know exactly what. And I made the decision to go to a really good psychologist. And so about three months later, we, we had arrived at a diagnosis and a treatment plan. But what I found during that time was that uh, most of the resources I was looking at were excellent from the perspective of learning about OCD, learning about OCD treatment. But as a parent, and especially a new parent, I was frustrated with a couple of things. I didn't know how to apply some of the cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure response with prevention therapy exercises in my life as a parent. Some of the literature was just taking too long to, to get through with the amount of time and energy that I had. And I was also frustrated with the pace of progress because my boys had needs and my family had needs and I wanted to make sure I could meet them. So eventually I decided to turn all those frustrations into a project of my own. And I wrote a book called uh, OC Dad, Learn to Be a Parent with a Mental Health Disorder. And that's, uh, that's led to connecting with a lot of really fantastic mental health community members and a really good personal journey for me. And through all those travels, we've crossed paths. So here we are. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today. And I really look forward to the conversation that we're going to create around mental health, about resources and how to access those even within our own, you know, cognitive and emotional capacity. Because you're right, when you have a child, I, I can only imagine with twins, when you have a newborn, you really are catapulted, especially with the first addition of children to the home it's like you know let me leave with these people like you know everybody is like you're you're not you don't have an instruction manual exactly on uh, no. how to work with the kids going home and i can only imagine if you started having some really scary intrusive thoughts just how debilitating that could be so in just thinking back do you have a memory of kind of what your first whoa like in hindsight you can you know it was ocd but like you said at the time, had that first kind of experience of having intrusive thoughts around the boy's birth? So I'll give you a two-part answer to that because one of the kind of fascinating and surprising aspects of learning about OCD was the amount of flashbacks from even from childhood that I was getting that I could now look at and say, oh gosh, that that was an intrusive thought. That was an obsession. My first memory, honestly, goes as far back as when I was in grade six. So where I'm from, that'd be like 11 years old. And I laugh about it now, but like, I can still remember in grade six, like that tends to be the time. And I've seen this as a teacher where hormones start going and kids start learning about swear words and all kinds of other things that I can remember. I can remember being around friends and everybody starts swearing. And of course I would swear wanting to fit in. But then I remember having this feeling that I had to go and pray for forgiveness off in the corner. And I would sneak off on the way to class and go do that. And then kind of go back to class because things didn't feel right otherwise. And you know, I'm mean, not even what I would call an especially religious person in the traditional sense, but that was a very distinct feeling. And at the time it just seemed normal because I thought, well, I swore and swearing is not a good thing to do. So if I just ask for an apology for it, then that'll be great. Kind of the world will be righted again. And At the time, it didn't seem like anything abnormal to me, but I think that the experience of having kids puts additional stress and tiredness in your life, sometimes to the point where you 
bottom out in one of those areas that, that, that might be a little where you might be a little less stable, or maybe you uh, just haven't, haven't explored yet. And that was certainly the case for me. My first noticeable intrusive thoughts with my boys were two things, actually. One was I was constantly picturing them falling from a height. I often tell people, if you think back to like, if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings and there's those scenes where Frodo is like falling backwards away from the oh, camera yeah. and you can see him kind of want, I, yeah. I was picturing that happening to my boys all the time to the point where I, I wouldn't take them on balconies of any kind because the thoughts were just too powerful. And I was worried that somehow or another, it was just going to happen. It wasn't going to be me throwing them off. I mean, and people that I've talked to um, since discussing those details, there are people who have intrusive thoughts like that. Yeah. Very fortunately for me, that wasn't the case. But then the other one was around water. As soon as we, uh, had the brown water. I, I had all kinds of thoughts of just drowning, choking, you name it. And those, the key with those was that, you know, I would talk to my brother-in-law, for example, who has two kids that are around the same age as our boys. And he would say to me, well, yeah, like, I don't want my kids to fall from heights. I don't want them to drown. Like, is, is this, what's the big deal in a way? Like not in a callous way. He was just yeah. actually asking like, kind of, so I don't understand why this is bothering you so much. And I said, well, I can't sleep because of them. Yeah. Like, I, I can't turn this off. It's like a flashing highlight reel from a horror movie kind of thing. And I, yeah. I, I can't turn it off. And so that really sparked the whole process of like, this is not typical. <laughs> this is yeah. more than typical. I, I need to learn more about this. So really those two stick out. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes a really good point because OCD can take thoughts that are would be scary for anyone and it amplifies them into excess. And so, like you said, and I would imagine you may have even had some nightmares about that if you were not able to shut it off. Or do you remember? Oh, yeah. Well, and it was funny the first couple of times, but then the next dozen times weren't so funny. Like I would wake up uh, convinced that something was happening and my wife would kind of reach up and like put her hand on my shoulder. So I'd wake up ah, we gotta get, ah. and then and then she'd kind of just hey, it's OK. They're 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 fine. They're fine. They're fine. And kind of settle me back down. And and I remember that being a very surprising, shocking thing too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite pervasive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about, you know, as a new parent, you're already experiencing some insomnia just with the new schedule and with two, cause you know, you might get one down, the other ones get the other one settled. The other one may wake up. Um, mm -hmm. but adding on the intrusive thoughts and just how terrifying it is to imagine, not only just to imagine, but if you actually are seeing kind of that flash of your child being hurt, drowned, falling, that is absolutely terrifying. And so it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense that your nervous system was just on fire and already tired. Now you can't sleep because, yeah, you're, you're living in this constant fear of something happening to the most precious little, very dependent little humans possible. So that is, is definitely a very tough place to be. So you talked about it was about a three-month journey into therapy of figuring out that this was OCD. What did that process look like for you? The way it started was there was an office uh, near my home city mm -hmm. that I had heard of, actually just through a, a colleague, and I was able to get in there. I'm, and that's one thing. I mean, I'm very fortunate in the sense that my work does provide some benefits. And through working in the school system, I have some awareness of referrals and how those things work. And I always put that out there because there are lots of people who don't. And there's some information in my book, and I'll mention that later, Yeah, about just helping people figure out how to access some of that care because it can be a longer road and there are options that can be used in the meantime. 
so thankfully I was able to get in and I had the first session with Dr. Jones is his name. And the first session was actually quite direct. I just opened it right up about most of the intrusive thoughts I was having and just saying, I, I can't figure this out. This won't go away. My self-esteem is, is in the trash. I have no energy. I, I don't know what's going on. And he just kind of nodded. And then he picked up a post-it and wrote something down and he said, okay, go buy this book and then come back in a couple of weeks and we'll talk about it. And I was like, what book? And the book was Overcoming OCD by uh, Dr. Jonathan Abramowitz. So yeah. that I highly recommend that if anybody is listening and is looking for a good starting guide, yeah. um, ideally with the help of a therapist. But at first I kind of went, what, what, what are you talking about OCD? I only knew as much as anybody would have known about OCD at that point. And that's one of the reasons why we had mentioned earlier, can I trace back to some intrusive thoughts that I had as a younger person? Well, I can do that all the way through my 20s, but even in my 20s, I just sort of figured, well, I'm a little quirky, maybe I'm a little off. And, you know, there's a lot out there about people get very, very upset about like OCD is not an adjective and saying I'm a little bit OCD or this is peaking my OCD. I mean, I don't like those stereotypes either, and it's important that they get corrected. But the thing is, I can empathize with them a little bit in the sense that that's where I was too. Right. That's where I was pre-diagnosis. And so I don't scorn people for that. I just make sure that they're kind of gently corrected on it. And so then over the next couple of months, it was a process of learning about the diagnosis, accepting it and processing some emotions around it too. It was, it was partially relief. I remember writing in the margins of the book, oh my gosh, this is me. Like, uh, like so, so yeah. finally, like there's a name for this. Somebody's actually studied it. It's common. I'm not broken. Like, you know, yeah. Those types of things. But then there was also a lot of, and again, over that first few months, there was a lot of like, how did it take this long? Oh my gosh, there actually is something that I need to do here. This is something I'm going to have to manage. And so there's all those mixed emotions, more positive than negative. But after those first three months, we were then full on into like a CBT and ERP treatment program. So first three months of just kind of getting to know everything, processing all the emotions around it. And then within those first three months, right off into a steady treatment program. Yeah. Okay. And Dr. Bromowitz is great. He has a lot of books out and he's even written on OCD in the family system. And he is, mm -hmm. you know, he is a great resource. I'm glad that was helpful. I can only imagine though, because my kids are a bit older at this point, but if somebody hands me a book and says, Hey, go read this. Okay. In all my free time, I'll do that. I imagine in all your free time, it was probably hard to get through the density of this book. And yet also really exhilarating in the sense of, wait a minute, I'm not alone. And this does describe me and holy cow, you know, just having that epiphany of going through it. So I think that that would both be very helpful and difficult to try and go through a book at that time where you're not sleeping, you're, you're constantly barraged by these intrusive thoughts, and the boys are very needy, and your wife is going to need your help too, because even with one, your hands are full, let alone with twins. Yeah, it's, um, again, very, very double-sided that way. It, it absolutely was demanding, and some and people ask about, you know, how did you find time for it, for example, now in the first six weeks. Honestly, I didn't find time. And I do tell, and I do mention that sometimes because like, and again, you have three kids, you know, the newborn stage is very all encompassing, whether you have twins or not. And I think, I mean, I know how intense twins were, but I know that I know that one baby or three babies can be, can be equally intense depending on the situation. So I always say to people like, don't be too hard on yourself. If you are just treading water for the first month or two, because it's, it's hard. Uh, but then eventually, like we were lucky, my mother-in-law came to live with us for a couple months. So there were times where I was able to get away and know that each of the boys was covered. And that's a unique 
advantage that we had. But then once we were on our own and in just general day-to-day life, I'm very frank with people about, yeah, like some things dropped off the radar for a little while. Leisure time, TV time, even some mornings I'd wake up a little bit early and it was absolutely exhausting. But the other thing is that I really, really wanted to know more and get better because I could see that it was having an impact on my family life and on me and and on my wife. I mean, my wife was recovering from delivering twins and nursing full time. And and she was on broken sleep because I wasn't waking up for every single feeding. As a twin parent, I woke up for quite a few because both had to be fed at the same time sometimes. But uh, all those things, so those were all motivators. So yes, definitely stressful getting that done. But at the same time, when I started to see a path forward and saw something that really resonated with me, then it made a difference. It made a difference. Ultimately, we put the time in. I mean, I still give credit to my wife all the time. It was hard on her during that time. And I, I I can't sugarcoat that. I would say that she did more of the evening cleanup. She had a, you know, some weekend days where I'd be away for an hour or two getting these things done. It was a necessary strain and a helpful one long-term, but definitely a strain. So, so yeah, all, all those things put together. <laughs> yeah. And can I ask, were you, did you go back to work or was, did it happen to be around kind of a school time break for you? Or were you like back into teaching pretty quickly after the twins were born? We had our boys on July 5th and my school year, the summer break is generally about June 30th to September 1st. So we did have some time at home, which was good. And then once the school year started, it was a matter of booking appointments around the school day. And my family, both on my side and my wife's side, were super helpful with coverage and things like that. So yeah, absolutely some added stressors and not the ones that we thought we were going to be managing. Sure. But uh, yeah, so a, a mixture of fortunate and unfortunate timing there. <laughs> right. Well, and then that's, you know, what, five, six months before COVID really hits the world by storm. Yes. So yep. that is, you get just get adjusted to the new normal and then absolutely everything goes down mm-hmm. the drain. In terms oh, yeah. of going into the shutdowns, which I'm sure had a huge impact as well, because now I'm were you working in a school setting and then that that transition to remote work and you're constantly there with the kids, your wife, maybe if you're did you say your mother or your mother in law that had crowned? my mother in law lived with us for the first couple of months and then we would have family stopping by. But then when COVID hit, nobody came by. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. We had a few different jokes with that. I it, my wife would sometimes say, like when I was home a lot, she'd say, it's, it's, it's great that you're home. She said, but just, I have to explain things now. <laughs> you know, she would say, like, it's, it's helpful, but sometimes it's nice not to have to explain things. So I love both. I don't want you to think like I want you to leave or something. But, you know, she goes, there are times where you can just let me handle things a little bit. And I was like, okay, okay, okay I get that, no problem. Yeah. And then during COVID, and I imagine like a lot of families, like we were very fortunate in the sense that like I didn't lose work. I was able to work from home. But my, but my wife, absolutely, between me being in my therapy treatments just went digital or over the phone. Sure. Um, but, but me being in treatment, the boys being young, not being able to go anywhere. I really credit her for uh, how hard she worked and how resilient she was during all those times because it wasn't easy. Right. Yeah. Well, and it wasn't easy under the best of circumstances. No, no, me. it wasn't easy for anyone. So nope. absolutely, add on new parent, add on not being able to get some space. Sometimes when you're constantly seeing your kids and you're having intrusive thoughts about your kids, then it's yeah. like a constant trigger in a way, even though when you're apart, that can also be triggering and the what ifs. But yeah, I mean, going through COVID, who could have expected it to be the cluster that it was? Um, mm. Yeah, I would imagine that just put a little bit of gasoline on the fire in terms of trying to work all those pieces out. 
It did. And I, I often tell people like, so for, for me, there were sort of the impacts of OCD in terms of how I approached my family. And then in terms of the ones that affected me sort of internally and the, the main effect on me internally, I would say was actually energy levels. And what I mean by that is lost sleep from intrusive thoughts, kind of highlight reels of intrusive thoughts and obsessions, sometimes from Sometimes from compulsions to, to try and mitigate those. One of the ones that I tell people, for example, is putting my boys down to bed. I had three different checks of their breathing that I had to do three times each. Mm -hmm. So I would, and, and again, it's one of those things where most new parents will tell you, yeah, I, I would, I, I hold my hand in front of my kid's mouth or I put my hand on their chest to feel their chest rising and falling. And what I found though, was that if one of those was done incorrectly, even if I left the room, I would risk waking them up to go in and do it again because I, I. I couldn't fall asleep. I could not settle until the next day when I had proof that they were still alive. Right. <laughs> and, and, and it was that severe and it's that severity and the impact on day-to-day -day life that is one of the defining characteristics. And over time, that just gets exhausting. And then the other thing is that oh, if, yeah. you're going through the, if you're going through the day fighting more compulsions and obsessions, that drains you of your mental energy. So you end up having less for your partner and your kids or whoever it is that you live with. And then in terms of how I approached my boys, it was just a lot of rigid thinking in terms of their care. I didn't have any contamination obsessions about myself getting infected, but when we were changing diapers, if their hands flew down to the diapers at all, you know, a lot of extra washing, um, yeah. a lot of intrusive thoughts and obsessions around feeding. Again, I credit my wife. She weaned them on to solid foods and really coached me through that whole process. Uh, same thing with the cry it out method. We did sleep train our boys because it's just their twins and we needed them to be able to fall asleep on their own. And they did thankfully, but that was another huge round of intrusive thoughts and compulsions. And again, my wife kind of sitting there dealing with me being irritable, being exhausted, dealing with all the check-ins to make sure that they weren't choking, dealing with me checking in with her. Did I, did she wash them correctly? Another one that I had was with dressing them. Every time I went to pull, uh, as they got a little older, when I went to pull a shirt over their head, I would picture their neck snap right down to like me having to explain to the police in the corner how I broke my child's neck, like completely accidental. But right. for the longest time, I would have to put them in wraparound clothes, even if it was just a button collared shirt. And then the shirts that uh, we did have them wear, I would stretch the necks a little bit. And, you know, my wife, the one who does the laundry and the shopping and all that, she was thrilled with that one. Right. So it was a, a process of all that. And then certainly being at home and kind of in a self-contained model there didn't help. So that's where, again, the, the treatments and the actual therapeutic process in the midst of all that was really quite a saving grace. Yeah. Right. So let's talk about the treatment because the treatment, sure. the treatment is a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people. And if you have never experienced exposure and response prevention <laughs> treatment, then it's going to sound pretty out there. It's going to feel pretty out there. And not everybody listening to this podcast is going to have had a personal experience with exposure and prevention. I've done some explanations in prior podcasts about basically how we're trying to reduce and resist the compulsions, which if it were that easy, poof, there you go. Mm. You know, OK, I don't need yeah. to do things in sets of three and I don't have to do this for, the, for survival to maybe occur. But can you describe what your initial kind of experience of getting into ERP was like and CBT? Because I think that that perspective is probably one that a lot of people can relate to. I think it's really important that terms like this be both demystified and simplified. Like I encourage anyone 
who has the slightest bit of openness to it, to engage with therapy. It's not sort of the mystical, magical, like Freudian reading your mind, you know, type of thing that people say. It's a straightforward, practical exercise in figuring out what's going on in your mind, quantifying it to a certain extent, and then setting a plan based on whatever goals you have. It's an oversimplification to say that it's the same as personal training or financial planning or something like that. But the overarching concept of assess, plan, and then act is the same. And so for me, for ERP, the way I always explain that to people is you find whatever that trigger is. So let's say it's contamination, for example. You find whatever that trigger is and you list every version of that trigger that triggers you for want of a better term. So it could be touching a doorknob in a shopping mall. It could be using a public toilet. It could be washing your hands in a public sink. It could be cleaning the bathroom in your own house. It could be touching a light switch that another family member has touched. And and then you rank those by how uncomfortable they make you. So in my in my group therapy, we used a sud scale subjective units of discomfort. We rated it from zero to 100, 100 being panic, heart rate is through the roof. I can't handle this all the way down to a 10, which might be like, ah, I don't like that, but whatever, I can deal with it. And you put them in order and you gradually expose yourself to each level from the bottom up until they become boring, familiar, maybe comfortable, but at least boring and familiar and you work your way through it. Now, the upside to that is that in my experience, that process works. It's, it's solid, it, it works, it has lasting changes. The downside is that it requires all the same things that you need to be a good parent. It requires time, mm-hmm. structure, energy, both physical and emotional. It can require money <laughs> yeah. and, and it requires consistency. So in my case, the one with my boys and heights, for example, mm-hmm. a lot of that was closely tied to a lot of that was closely tied to my fear of heights. I have just a natural fear of heights. I always have OCD, oftentimes intrusive thoughts are ecodystonic, meaning they're a combination of they focus on like the things you love and the things you fear the most. I sometimes tell people is sometimes how that manifests. And so for me, I created a hierarchy of heights that I was comfortable exposing myself to. And then using CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, I used probability charts and journaling to confront my fear of heights. So for example, uh, and I talk about this in my book, I used a, a probability chart to tackle my fear of my boys falling through climbers, just mm-hmm. park climbers near our house, the floor falling through, for example. And this cognitive behavioral therapy exercise essentially helps you articulate the thought, analyze it rationally, and then reevaluate thoughts. So what I did was I said, okay, what would have to happen for them to either fall off that climber or fall through it? And then what are the percentages of those things happening? Well, the metal floor would have to cave in. All right, well, what are the odds of that happening? Pretty low. That climber's pretty new. We're going to call that a two to 5% chance. I'd have to leave them on the climber unsupervised at 18 months old. What are the chances of that? Well, zero, because my wife and I are not going to leave them unsupervised on a climber. And you go through it that way. And then you say, okay, there's actually a really low probability. So how should I readjust my reaction, right? So between between those two things, uh, between those two types of processes, a lot of intrusive thoughts and obsessions, they dull. They end up with a lot less sting and they get to a point where I had this little mantra for myself of like, all right, how does my brain work? I know how my brain works with this. And it got to the point where I could kind of hear it like a car alarm in the background. You know, you're in your house and you hear someone's car going, you're like, all right, yeah, it could be a robber, but it's very likely that someone just hit their panic button and then it goes away. And that's what it brings it down to for me. So it takes a lot less energy to deal with it. And I recognize it for what it is. And there's space between the intrusive thought itself 
and my reaction to it. So that's really what ERP and CBT are for me. And that's also the end goal is that separation between there's what the thought is and then space. And then I choose my reaction to it rather than being completely bound to it. Does that make sense? That yes. was a fair bit. Sorry. But. No, 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 absolutely. <laughs> it makes sense. And I think that I really like the analogy of the key fob going off if somebody accidentally hits that, because how often do you actually see somebody breaking into a car in your life? Yeah. But we learn to tune it out. We learn to say, oh, that's annoying. I hope whoever's car that is gets shut off. We learn to deal with it in that way. We don't have to engage, which beforehand, if you're having images of your children falling through a platform, if you're having images of their neck breaking, you're going to respond to that, right? Yes. So yeah. it's quite remarkable to be able to go, okay, yeah, I know I, it's going on in the background, but I don't have to engage. And I think yeah. that is a, a piece that people that have not gone through treatment and are just getting into the world of OCD and understanding OCD, it's hard for them to fathom it would ever be the key fob in the background. It's yeah. so intense. It's so intrusive right now that... To think that that could switch is, you know, that's the hope. But at the same time, what if I'm broken? What if it doesn't happen for me? It can be a, a real, you know, fear for people. And I, and I would add that when it comes to parenting and kid-focused obsessions and compulsions, there's part of you that feels like they're completely justified because what parent isn't going to be cautious about their kid's safety? What parent wants their child to get sick? What parent wants their child to get sick? So- you also have this part of you going like, which of this is just parenting right? and the normal anxieties of being a parent. And, and again, I'm, and I'm sure you've heard people say before, lots of people talk about, I had my first kid, I was washing everything. I was padding everything in my house. I was super cautious. Oh, I yeah. worried about everything. And then my second and third kids come around and I go, eh, yeah. I've been through this once. I can relax a little bit more. Well, that's the result of experience and thinking a bit more rationally now that the process is a little bit more familiar. But what's important to understand about OCD is that the amygdala, like kind of the instinct protection center of the brain is just firing so intensely that you don't settle. You don't, you don't calm those thoughts down. And I always tell people that the neuroscience of OCD, as, as I've come to experience it, is say, for example, you spill raw chicken juice on your counter when you're making food. And there's a part of your brain, I forget the exact part, but uh, there's a part of your brain that goes up, oh, there's bacteria in that juice, that's a hazard. Mm -hmm. Sends a message to the response part of your brain saying, let's go get the cleaner and clean that up. You go get the cleaner, you spray, you clean, you clean it up. And then the cycle goes back in reverse. Action done, threat gone, you know, threat response center shuts down. Well, with OCD, it's one of those things where you go through all those steps and then you say, okay, the chicken juice is gone, the counter's safe. But then the message gets sent right back. Right. But there might be some, but there might be some left. And right. then you say, well, there isn't. I just wipe it up. But there might be some left. Well, there isn't. But there might be. Well, there isn't. Right. right. So you, and that's really where that whole cycle can begin. And so with parenting, you have the added element of, well, I'm just being a protective dad. Well, no, you're being a little bit irrational. Well, no, I'm being a protective dad. This could happen. Well, it's not actually that possible. Yes, it is very possible. And I'll be, you know, yeah. Bobby, if I'm going to be the guy that lets that happen to my kid, you know, th th there's that added element and that takes a little bit more working through as well, which again is why I wanted to take the time to put that all into writing in this book is because I didn't find any of that out there. I didn't find any of those discussions. And I really just had to process that on my own and talking to my wife about it too. She was super helpful, but we also had that element of like, she was frustrated by all of this and she was often exhausted. And so I didn't always feel comfortable putting it all on her to try and talk through this with me. 
you know, family accommodation is a huge thing, like how much your family indulges in your symptoms or allows them. And there's a fine balance there. And my wife and I agreed very early on that this was my responsibility and that's a healthy boundary to set. And so those things took time and a lot of journaling and a lot of sort of mind and soul searching because, yeah, that that telling the difference between healthy parenting and OCD symptoms is difficult. It, it's very difficult. It is. It is difficult to draw the line of, you know, what is, like you said, normal anxiety, whether it's about your children, whether it's about, you know, did I do something morally wrong or make a mistake by the cursing even, you know, way back in the day. It, it can be hard to differentiate. Oh, yeah, well, I know I I made a mistake or this could be interpreted this way. So it starts off so subtle and snowballs with OCD. But something that I I tend to kind of reflect on is OCD tends to sink its tentacles into anything that really matters in your life. So you have yeah. these new yeah. precious babes. And I can see some pictures on the wall behind you. I'm doing this <laughs> of these kiddos. But it's it's so hard it is so, so hard to say, where is the line? Because you can talk to other parents and they're like, oh, yeah, I've, I've, wor I've worried about that before. But, you know, I don't it doesn't keep me up at night. And you're like, but it mm. does. It does yeah. keep me up at night. And I yeah. think that's where we can where it's very helpful, especially if you are able to get into therapy and access therapy. And I realize that that's a privilege sometimes for people to even have access to that resource. In Canada, I know healthcare is readily more available. But again, depending on where you're at in the world, sometimes you won't necessarily have access to healthcare or can't afford healthcare. And that can be difficult. But yes, having a professional be able to help parse out where that line is between healthy anxiety and I can give it information and it can kind of go down and that distressing in excess obsessive compulsive anxiety where it just continues to loop in that feedback loop like you were describing. Mm -hmm. I think the the help of a neutral objective source is so important with that. One of the things that my therapist really helped me to do is, is analyze and quantify even just the level of harm that some of my obsessions and compulsions were causing. And that's, and that's one thing that therapy really does is it helps you gauge severity and it helps you define severity. And in doing so, it helps you set goals. Like one of the, I just, um, on the blog on my website there, I, I just put up a, a chart that I sort of, again, I take no credit for the content that's in it. I pulled the questions, various resources and made it into sort of a fast track harm assessment for various intrusive thoughts. So just, this is the thought I'm having, how do I measure how it's actually impacting my day? And I wanted to be able to do that quickly so that I could decide what to do with these things. So I made a little fast track version of it for myself and, and then just decided to kind of give it out there. It is in my book as well, along with a bunch of other things, but that was a process that I learned. And until then, uh, I really thought it was my job to just kind of fight through these things, just tough them out. And oh, well, this is going to be a tiring phase and all these other things. And it's definitely, uh, I wish I knew then what I know now. Absolutely. And he was mentioning his website. It's the yeah. OC dad. The OC dad.ca. T-H-E-O-C-D-A-D.ca. Yeah. And, and so definitely you can check that out. I'm also going to put a link to your website on this episode, ocdfamilypodcast.com. And so we can definitely link there as well. So, you know, in talking about OCD, it's one thing getting into it. It's one thing kind of figuring out that family piece of how and when you're going to be able to have therapy, let alone do homework and be dad and be husband and be teacher and be, you know, and be yourself. But also in terms of 
the stigma that can be carried with OCD or any mental illness, really. Can you talk a little bit about what that process was like for you? Because you did talk to your brother-in-law with kiddos the same age. You did talk to people. What was that like once you knew it was OCD and you started sharing that? Did you feel supported? Did you feel like, oh, you know, now people are going to be kind of weird around me? Or, you know, what was that like for you? Well, certainly... My family were very supportive. The stigma piece, I felt it the strongest in two ways. Uh, one was when you open up about a mental health condition and your parent at the same time, you always have this fear of, is somebody going to take my kids away? <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, and I don't mean to say at all that people with mental health disorders can't be good parents and aren't good parents. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that that fear is definitely there because because there are a lot of unknowns with it. And when you say mental health disorder, I, I don't think there are a ton of positive assumptions out there. I think our world is becoming a better place for that. I genuinely do. And I'm hopeful and optimistic about mental health awareness and mental health treatment. I do hope that that will become one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that it might bring more awareness to that and maybe even make it more of a focus for public health. But you know, that remains to be seen. Um, but I but I felt that very, very strongly, even with my therapist, the first few times I described some of the obsessions and compulsions I had around my kids, I said like, listen, are you going to call child services after this? Right. And I'm kind of looking at them and he looked at me directly and he said, I'm not calling anyone. said, I can tell how much you love your boys. Yes, you're struggling with this, but you're working through it. I'm not calling anyone. Okay. And I said, okay, okay. But that's absolutely out there. And I would actually say that the antidote to it is actually to articulate exactly what's going on in your head in whatever place you feel comfortable and then build from there. So if you can start off by journaling and rereading your thoughts, for example, you can start off by opening up to a family member or a friend and then open up to a professional and, and they can certainly help. That's one of the pieces about OCD that's really important for people to understand is that there are people out there who have intrusive thoughts of harming their kids. There are people out there who have intrusive thoughts about, I wish I never became a parent, intrusive thoughts about running away, intrusive thoughts about cheating on their spouse. All these things related to family are out there. But one of the things that you learn is that this crazy brain of ours processes 10,000 odd thoughts a day, and not all of them are nice, but that's just part of it. And that's really the difference in some ways between an OCD, a person with OCD and a quote, neurotypical person is that lots of people have intrusive thoughts where it's like someone cuts in front of you with your car. Oh, I'd like to punch that person in the face right? because maybe you're having a bad day. And then you say, oh, yeah, I said that in frustration. I'm not going to get out and punch this person in the face, whatever. But then someone with OCD might, oh my God, I'm violent. I'm a sociopath. How could I possibly right. want to punch this person? So those same thoughts come up with what your diagnosis means about you as a parent. And even as a teacher, it was something where like I work with kids all the time. Does this mean I'm not qualified anymore? And again, I would never treat anybody that way. I would never say that to anybody. I don't believe that about anybody, but the thoughts about yourself come up regardless, right? Um, You know, and then the second one is just that you feel a lot of stigma around being a provider and about struggling at a time when you're supposed to be rock solid and of putting strain on your family when it's really not supposed to be about you. It's both for me, it was supposed to be about my wife and kids. And there were times where I had to, I had to take time and focus on myself for the greater good in the long term. And, and that's tough to resolve with it. Sometimes it's, it's important and it feels good to be progressing, but there's definitely some guilt and some shame around that. So yeah, those two things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are 
as many thoughts as you can imagine. OCD can really spiral in any direction, but there, you know, whether it's harm coming to your child from some outside, you know, variable, or whether it's what if I did this and oh my gosh, the fact that I had this thought. What does that mean about me and and how OCD just loves to just kind of stretch that out and build it up into if you don't do this, this, this and this, then, you know, you did that or maybe you still did. You know, you don't get that sense of relief that comes from being able to just say, oh, yeah, I was mad in the moment. And everybody gets thoughts like that sometimes. And it's really scary for people to put out loud, which, you know, I was thinking about when you even talked about first going to your therapist, you said I was really direct, and I just laid it all out there. And what I was thinking at the time, which I'm glad it it kind of got re-triggered, because I do want to say this, it takes a lot of bravery and courage, because you are a little afraid. Like, what if they lock me up and throw away the key because I'm actually, yeah. you know, you're putting out there and saying to another person, now they know that feels really, really scary. And I think this is something a lot of parents, but a lot of people can feel in general, whether they're taking care of, say, their parents who are dependent upon them or even within, you know, their house setting within their marriage with their pets. It can look so many different ways. And they think, well, I must be this you know, terrible person because I, I could, I can see this. I can imagine this happening. I can feel it. And it is a very scary thing to verbalize out loud that even writing it, as you said, and reading it over can be very triggering, but that isn't a great example of kind of an entry-level exposure to acknowledging that you had that thought and you write it down and it's real. You say it and it's, it's real. It feels real. And so being able to even build some stress tolerance with that can be very, very hard. And so really, I love what you said about articulating it, but also just even connecting with somebody else about it is very, very important, I think, because just realizing that you're not isolated and alone and the only person that's ever had this thought, but there's actually an entire community of humans. And honestly, every human's had an intrusive thought from one time to another. And so, you know, it is really, really empowering when you realize oh my word, it's not just me and I'm broken and my brain is broken or I'm this malicious, terrible person and I'm going to watch these terrible things happen. Instead, you realize, oh, my brain is having an intrusive thought. And just like that beeper in the back, I hope that turns off soon. That's annoying. It's a very different way of engaging with the intrusive thought. So that's great. I also thought, you know, in terms of the stigma, and I would imagine a lot of men or, or head of households, head of households can certainly be women as well, feel that sense of responsibility around being the protector to being the security for everyone else. And so if you're feeling any kind of shakenness within that kind of firm rooting, then it's really hard when you feel like not it, this doesn't just impact me. The whole family is underneath me. And what if, you know, what if, what if, what if? But I also like, I, you know, it, I, I like to give this analogy to people, whether it's OCD or not. I always think of, you know, when you get on the airplane and if you're traveling with children, they say, in the event of an emergency, the oxygen mask will release. Always put on the oxygen mask for yourself before you help children or somebody that mm-hmm. needs assistance mm-hmm. next to you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the reality is because if we don't have that oxygen mask, we can't help. We, if we don't take care of ourselves, if we don't 
take the space, even though it can be hard to find. And we feel like, hey, I should have all this shit together, right? But if we don't put on our own oxygen mask, then our other people that are depending on us aren't going to be able to access that because we do have to take care of ourselves. And I think that's a hard lesson for parents in general, but let alone if you're experiencing this kind of turmoil. It's like, I've got to do this. Like the best chance for them having the best me, the best security is for me to be able to take that time and pour into myself. Oh, I, I completely agree. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think it's important for people to know too that some of those things like like taking care of yourself, making a situation more manageable certainly is and can be the therapeutic journey, but it can be smaller things. One example that I always like to point to Game show host, TV personality, um, Howie Mandel. Uh-huh. So he's well, he's well known. He's well documented his OCD for quite a while now. He wrote a book about it called Here's the Deal, Don't Touch Me. And it's interesting. I never knew he had OCD for the longest time. But if you look back at what was that one show that he had with the briefcases? Oh, I forget. Oh, the- oh deal or no deal. That's the right, one. Right, right. But if you watch whenever the guest came on, he would always fist bump. He would never shake hands. And I remember that being... I learned that that was like in the liner notes of anybody he worked with, like, do not shake my hand kind of thing. But one of the things that he talks about, because when I saw that, the reason I bring it up is because when I saw that, I wondered, okay, how do you change your kids' diapers? And one thing he actually talks about in the book is that, you know, it's, it's not uncommon. People will wear surgical gloves when they do diaper changes. And it's this interesting little discussion because you might think like, that's really weird. You're going to put surgical gloves on. But then you think to yourself, well... But what's the big deal? That's an example of putting your oxygen mask on so that you can perform your parenting duties. And it's like, well, the extra five seconds to put a a set of gloves on, like it's completely off the beaten path as far as parenting techniques that I've heard of, but it makes sense and it harms no one. Like in terms of, you know, you you still get to do the diaper changes and it allows those situations to be functional while you continue on with the rest of your treatment. So absolutely. And that's one of the things that really pushed me through the whole process was knowing that I'm doing this, knowing that the goal is is long-term health. And a huge motivator for the book was to one day be able to, once my boys are reading, is to say to them like, yep, this is what I did. Because another fear that a lot of parents with OCD have is do my kids have OCD, right? And I'm not a doctor. I don't know all the science and statistics on that. I do know there can be a genetic component. Uh, certainly modeled behaviors can have some effect. Sometimes it's like that They develop some behaviors because of their parents and then some in spite of their parents, right? Which I think is true for all of us. Yeah. But the way I feel about it now is that if that does come up, I feel like I have an awareness of what therapy looks like, what it's like to go through a mental health diagnosis, uh, to confront that process, what you need, what you don't need, and how to help. And so that's that's comforting. And that's definitely one of the long-term benefits of taking time to really engage with therapy and not think too rigidly about how I needed to handle that struggle. Because as I said, getting some alternative perspectives from family and from a neutral objective perspective really brought me around to all those things that we just discussed in terms of long-term benefits and helping yourself. So yeah, totally get where you're coming from there. Yeah. And you know what, Jason, it's interesting because I think that OCD I actually, I know that OCD is way underdiagnosed. And I think Mm. it's a lot more prevalent than people realize. There is definitely, as with many mental illnesses and even other kinds of diseases, a genetic component that can happen as well. But it's very, very interesting. And I think similar to you kind of looking back in hindsight and going, you know, that thing about me needing to pray or confess or whatnot about saying a curse word. 
actually was OCD. It's like, well, how many people can relate to that, you know? And will your child have OCD or not? But I think one of the things I think is really cool about people that are able to A, learn that they have OCD and B, work through their own journey on how to be able to live their life in reflection of the OCD, not despite it, is really important. I think it's a huge benefit, and I always tell my OCD clients this, you're going to be able to learn to sit with uncertainty in a world that does not do well with that. Nobody, nobody does well with that. How many times have you heard somebody say, even if it's bad news, if I just know what's going to happen, I'll be fine. Yeah. But when can we really say, I mean, do we have like that good of a magic eight ball here that we could say like, oh yeah, this is how it's going to turn out. I know it. And we take for granted so many uncertainties, but OCD tells us in the brain, it says, but no, this is, this bad thing will happen if you don't do this. And even then it might've happened. In fact, you maybe already did it. And so that, that is excruciating. But when you get to the point where you can realize whether it's one of your regular intrusive thoughts or it's something that really kind of extinguishes as you get into the practice, some of it becomes like the beeper and background. Some of it is like, oh yeah, I forgot I used to, I used to struggle with that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it can be pretty powerful. But when you get to a place where you're empowered to go, I can live with the uncertainty, I think you have the advantage. I think in this world, people suffer a lot without having some kind of controlled, perceived sense of this is how this is going to turn out. Okay. So I think it's a gift in the end as you learn to really be able to hold that uncertainty. I think people with OCD have an advantage in that. I think so. And I think even just learning the different types of uncertainty that you feel, I I distinctly remember a part of my early therapy journey was there's almost this identity crisis is, is too much hyperbole. It's not as if you're questioning the very foundations of yourself, but it's more I've always felt that things are going to happen a certain way, or I've always trusted a certain amount of red flags and caution kind of just within my system here. So if I'm finding out that so much of this was actually like maladaptive symptoms, what does that mean for like who I am? If I'm not that person, like who am I going to be? And if that was, and if I can't trust my gut, in other words, is addressing all this, is becoming comfortable with uncertainty going to lead to more uncertainty in my life? Am I going to become less sure of myself by learning more about myself, right? Am I going to become more confused about who I am by learning about who I am? There's this paradox that you're wrestling with. And I think that one of the things that I really like about it is like, well, it's actually, you're not questioning your whole gut. It's, It's not your gut a lot of the time. It's intrusive thoughts that feel so powerful that they feel like your gut. Right. And that process of journaling and studying your thoughts that CBT and ARP really help with that whole process really, really helps with that. And it also, even that probability chart that I mentioned before, it just helps to give you a more realistic perspective about, like, you're absolutely right. The world is not a 100% safe place, never has been, never will be. But what you, but what I've learned, for example, is that there is a difference between possibility of risk and certainty of harm or hazard. And one of the things I talk about in my book is like the difference between hazard and risk. So I use rock climbers as an example. The height of a rock wall is a hazard. And with no ropes and no helmet, it's a huge risk. But with ropes, a guide and a helmet, the risk level goes down and the hazard level goes down. And those are the things that intrusive thoughts and rigid anxious thinking won't let you see. Even in terms of being able to study them, I talk a lot about imaginal exposures, for example. So with contamination of my boys, like I had lots of intrusive thoughts about them getting sick. 
they picked up something from the floor, I thought they were going to have hepatitis B, right? <laughs> or hepatitis A, hepatitis A rather. And I remember reading about an exposure ladder going, well, I'm not going to expose them to gradually more harmful contaminants just so that I can calm myself down. But with an imaginal exposure, what you do is you take those scenarios and you write them out and you write them out and you write them out and you reread them and you gradually expose yourself to them. And then you start to see either A, they become familiar and boring or B, they start to just, you start to develop a more realistic perspective on them as you actually think about your own thoughts. And again, there's that separation between the reaction and the thought that you have about it. So yeah, yeah. totally, totally see what you mean. We, I love using imaginal exposures and you and my clients listening will be like, oh yeah, she does. I always feel excited when my clients really take the lead of that scripting and they kind of pass the baton and they become the, the story creator of those different exposures. But something that I always find really empowering is when I, you know, if you take something like contamination for your kiddos and we start doing an imaginal exposure of just thinking about how this is just going to go so terribly wrong. A lot of times my clients will, at a certain point, it gets sensational enough, like this, this is how it's going to go, right? It gets sensational enough that they can't help but to laugh at it. And you're talking about their most precious, connected mm -hmm. relationship, and they're laughing at just kind of the audacity of, of, of what could happen in this imaginal exposure. And their brain has a moment, and I always, I always point it out to them saying how interesting that you could serve these compulsions a thousand, a million times over. How many times have you laughed about it when you were performing mm -hmm. the compulsion? And they haven't been able to laugh about it. It's torture. A lot of people, yeah. that's a misconception around OCD. Like they really like to do this certain thing to make themselves feel better. And it's like, no, there's a lot of torture that comes in having to do the compulsions to feel any sense of maybe we'll survive this. But I always enjoy when my clients are able to just go, huh, yeah, yeah, that's probably going to happen. That's right. You know, I'm going to go. We're going to go get AIDS today at the park and that'll be exciting. You know, I always wondered when we get AIDS and it's today at 930. Yeah. So here we go. Yeah. Now, now we've solved that problem. It's pretty empowering to be able to take that. And I think imaginal exposures can be really powerful for that. You don't have to go actually give them hepatitis. You don't have to go, you know. Dive into those dangerous situations, even just the mind is powerful. And even exposing yourself to that imaginal thought and script can be very helpful. Yeah. Thinking about thoughts as opposed to just thinking them is, is one way I like to put it. And, and it works for lots of things. And you do get to a humorous place with some of them. And it feels good when you get to that point. Magical thinking is another type of obsession that I dealt with. So thinking that, you know, this thought that I had caused this sports team to lose or because I thought the wrong thing heading through this door at the shopping mall. I have to walk back through the door and neutralize that bad thought so that the universe is back in order. And eventually, you know, I remember one friend kind of going like, that's some pretty amazing, like, that's, that's some pretty amazing psychological power you have there, eh? Yeah. Change, change, change the entire world with your thoughts there, Professor X, like from, you know, all yeah. the, this yeah. kind of thing. And, and you kind of like, all right, fine, fine. But yeah, so th those are the points that you get to. And it, it's one of those things that in hindsight is a source of humor and of gratitude and of happiness now, like seeing where that journey has come. But and you, you mentioned it though, those early goings, I mean, I can remember writing out my first imaginal exposure and I had learned about it in group therapy. So I went home and tackled my hardest one against the advice of my therapist. My therapist <laughs> didn't tell me to do that, but I did. And I broke down crying. I broke yeah. down crying as I was writing it out. It's, it's, it, but again, that was one of those things where it was a necessary step in the journey. And it was again, well worth the time. It definitely takes some intention and some cooperative work among a family to really find the time and effort to do all that. 
Right. But that was, but the other thing that I tell people is that both in terms of time and money, the commitments that you make for things like that are not static. They do improve over time mm -hmm. and with effort. And again, in my experience, they did. I'm not trying to diminish anybody else's situation out there who's still struggling. And I don't want to give the impression that it's like a light switch. We're talking a couple of years of process here for me, but I still tell people that there's absolutely hope and reason to do it because those things change. The amount of times I went to therapy, the amount of times I do exposures, the amount that I journal, all those things, they do get better. I, uh, and the ability to laugh is a nice effect later on. Yes. When you get to the point of laughing, it, it doesn't always happen in the beginning, right? But no. when you get to the point where you, it, it's kind of this transition point where you're like, wow, OCD is really losing some of its strength. Yes, and absolutely. That feels very, very empowering. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think you outlined that in your book well about how maybe you might have to invest more time in the beginning. You might have to invest more money in the beginning. You also point out, you know, if you don't have money to invest there, you know, what can you do? And you kind of go through a process of like, okay, what can I manage at this point? And writing that out and detailing that, which can be really helpful as well. It's very important. We would love it if it's a light switch, right? Like, you know, if we go in, we do an exposure and, you know, boom, we're better. And sometimes there are going to be certain themes or certain things that you're tackling that really have bothered you for a long time that will shift and take a different shape more quickly than you would anticipate. But other things will be a little more sticky. And so everybody's process is a little bit different. But getting into the therapy can be so, so helpful. The success rates towards improvement are just one of the highest in the mental health field, period. And so I think that's pretty powerful. I have clients that'll be like, I'm going to be the one person it doesn't work for, though. You know, the fact that you're showing up and even verbalizing that, I mean, I think you're in a better you're in a better lane for making some progress and movement forward in that journey. It's funny that you mentioned going to group therapy and going home and just tackling that hard-hitting first one because we definitely, I think, from the therapist's side, from our perspective, try to start low, go slow, because we don't want it to be such an overwhelming like launch into some of these bigger fears that you go, oh, there's no way in hell I'm ever going to be able to do this, and you totally yeah. kind of retract out. But you're not the only person that I've ever talked to certainly that has said, no, that's the shit that's keeping me up at night. So yeah. I went home and I started doing that. And it is, it's very scary to go into that place. So after having that experience, breaking down in tears, was it hard to go back to therapy? Was it hard to go back or practice the exposure the next day, knowing what that experience was like? Or how was that for you after getting through that first really hard hitting imaginal script? It was, it was definitely kind of a loss, in the, like taking a loss in your yeah. season sort of thing. You know, it, it was definitely, it, 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 was, it was a couple of days before I re-engaged. And it didn't make me afraid of the process. Actually, what it did was I had quite a few, like, I hate my brain moments. I was like, why? Like, it was, there was definitely some despair there. I was like, I hate that I think like this. I hate that I just reacted like that. That feeling didn't last, thankfully. But again, I can't deny that it was there. And I think... It's, it's okay that it was. I was very fortunate. I had a really good uh, therapy group and I went back, articulated that the next week and a lot of looks around everybody of just like, yep, yeah, okay. You know, like, <laughs> oh man, like, oh, that must've sucked. I was like, yeah, it really did kind of thing. But then going back and talking through that, 
made a, a really, really big difference. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned like that wasn't my first exposure to OCD literature. It wasn't my f- first exposure to ERP ever. And because of that, I still had some positive input of this isn't all that it is. I knew that I was tackling an intense one. So the fact that I fell on my face with it was very stressful, but not shocking per se. It was like, oh, this was like, well, that didn't go well. This really is hard, isn't it? And ERP is hard. I don't think it would be sort of ethical or realistic to tell anyone that it's, that it's not. That's also what I learned to recognize as like, that edge of discomfort there, like that's where the actual growth is happening here. I have to disrupt this. And the motivation of being there for my family was enough to push me through and get me back into that. And I often tell people, like, I've had people say, like, I just, I, I can't bring myself to go to therapy yet. Maybe it's like, I, my parents never talked about this. Like I grew up in a safe, open household, but lots of people don't. And it's like, my parents never talked about this or my community won't accept this or my work won't accept this or whatever it might be. Like, I can't just go to a therapist. And I say to people, it's like, well, you don't have to dive headfirst into intensive one-on-one individual therapy. In my book, I think it's 10 different resources and it's things that I think are maybe so obvious we don't even notice them. Public libraries have great resources that you can sign out. There is, there's, with the internet, it, I mean, as you know, the internet is a double-edged sword, of right. course. There's lots of good information out there. Right. Some of it is from people that genuinely want to help. Some of it is from people trying to sell things. It's a mix. But there are university hospitals that might have student trainings. There are telehealth services that will even do anonymous consultations. I mean, any any entry points. I mean, on my website too, theocdad.ca, I do have a resources section with some good just getting started things. You can order some of those books off Amazon and read them in the comfort of your own room if you're at all unsure of either how to get started or even getting started in general. So yeah, it's with that therapeutic process, definitely some ups and downs, but those definitely boost resiliency in the long term as well. Yeah, that's a, it's a really great point. It's helpful to recognize that ERP is, it's tough, but living with the intrusive thoughts is much so harder. much tougher and it's much relentless. Harder. It's relentless. And so, well, you know, it's definitely not a softball, the ERP, the freedom, the weight that it can lift off of your chest, realizing, oh, these things aren't all on my shoulders. These were just thoughts and I don't have to prove or disprove them. I can just be aware that they happened. Yeah, that's such an important distinction. And I remember thinking at one point, like I I was just so sick of things being the same too. I was so sick of the same anxieties and the same frustrations and seeing the same effects on my family. And my eventual thought was, all right, if I don't do this, I know what's going to happen. At least engage with this process, even a little bit, some, at least something new is going to happen. Even if I discover one technique that doesn't work, I've at least then discovered something that doesn't work. And I can cross that off the list of things that I was going to try. Like at least something new is going to happen. If I don't do this, the same thing is for sure going to happen. Uh, So yeah, it it is. And that's a process again, like in the midst of it, sometimes you're going like, what is the point of all this? This is exhausting. And again, especially when it's putting strain on your family. But I, again, I can't speak for everybody's example, but I can certainly speak for mine that it is well worth it and it is possible for sure. 
you've given us a lot of helpful perspective on what it's been like as a dad, and you've given your wife a lot of credit for her ability to weather the storm as well. Uh, but I wonder if you would be okay with speaking a little bit about how this then from a marriage perspective, because the OCD family community, we definitely have the interest in talking about parents and children and how that impacts the family, but also just in dating and in marriage and in relationship, because that OCD shows up. It does show up there. So to the extent that you'd be comfortable, could you share a little bit about how that has played out? I know in the book that you talk a little bit about learning about relationship OCD, but can you talk and speak to that a little bit? Sure. Well, and you mentioned relationship OCD. It's one of those terms, like, and again, I don't know how present it is. And like, I don't know how present it is in scientific literature, but I do know that family relations and marital relations are a huge part of OCD treatment and of just the whole OCD landscape. And it's one of those, it's one of those uh, sort of subcategories of OCD, one of those areas that OCD affects that I didn't know even until I actually, in my therapy group, There was a wonderful lady in the group, one of the clients, she was in her 50s, and she was talking about how it had affected her marriage over a long term with her husband. And I remember when she started talking, I was like, what? Wait, that's a thing? So it's like, it is a thing. And that was a huge revelation for me. So I I do just share that in the hopes that someone, it might have the same effect for somebody else. But in terms of how it affects things, yeah. So the first thing is there's confusion and strain when you are experiencing mental health symptoms that you can't explain and to a certain extent can't control. There's confusion and strain. I can remember having really tense reactions with my wife about even the way she was carrying one of our kids down the stairs. I didn't think it was stable and safe enough. We're not talking anything unsafe, by the way. She had right. him like hooked in her arm or something, yeah. but that didn't matter. Right. Uh, that didn't matter. And I went through this process where I'm kind of going, my intrusive thoughts and obsessions are flaring up about the step breaking or her dropping him because he squirmed or whatever it might be. But I'm also kind of going like, there's part of me going, this isn't rational. I can't criticize her for the way she's carrying the baby. And I'm going through this big process and I've got this look on my face and she would look at me and she'd go, there is energy like radiating off you right now. Like what is going on? And I was like, it's fine. Just leave me alone. And she'd be like, I was just asking, like, sorry. You know, so there are things like that where you are battling with what to react to and how to communicate it. And then you are trying to rationalize how fair is it to ask somebody to adjust to these things? So even with feeding and sleep training, there are some, you you have discussions about what could happen, what won't happen. You have discussions about how much reassurance you can ask for when it comes to your obsessions and compulsions. And the eventual rule that we came around to was I'm allowed to check in once and that's it. We're not going to have different rules when we go out into public places, for example, around touching things. It's like, you're going to be in a toy store. They're going to grab a toy that a hundred other kids have grabbed at some point. Like you Mm -hmm. They're going to do that with you and they're going to do that with me. Like that's, that's going to be what it is, but it's a journey to really hash out those conversations. And it's kind of hard to know what you need to discuss until it becomes a problem. So I didn't sit there and say, Hey, so let's discuss how we're going to act when we go to grocery stores. Let's discuss what we're going to do when I have an obsession about something they just picked up from the floor. You know, those things really came out over time and the odd time. It would be a more explosive reaction. We were playing at the park when the boys were maybe 15 months old. And most parents of 15 months old will remember the joyous stage of kids putting everything 
everything in their mouth. Yeah. Oh my gosh, everything. And so we have a lot of oak trees in the park near my house and the acorns fell and they were picking them up into them in their mouth. So I'm getting all kinds of thoughts about choking and disease and all this. And so I'm with one of my sons, my wife's with the other one. He picks up an acorn, put it down, put it down, put it down, put it down. You know, and, and she's looking at me going, I got him. I am three feet away from him. It's okay. So, you know, that's the kind, and she would look at me being like, do you not trust me in this situation? I've got it. Where's this reaction coming from? Now, the silver lining of all that is that once I started the therapeutic process and started learning more about myself and about OCD, we sat down and learned about that together. And again, you talk about things you can laugh about. My wife would just smack her forehead and say like, this explains so much about you. Oh my gosh. Kind of thing. And and then what that also helped with was deciding, okay, if we know where this is coming from and we understand its nature, how are we then going to react to it together? How are we going to set limitations on it? And then whose responsibility is the therapy, which of course it was mine. And then the last thing I would say that we had to talk very intentionally about was how we were going to allocate time and money. Because even with my job benefits, therapy costs money. It just does. Uh, I look at it as a long-term investment because it affects your ability to go to work. It affects your ability to have a sound thought process when you're financial planning, all those kinds of things. So the money you spend now versus later, maybe you're not going to go on a vacation this year. Maybe you're going to not buy as many treats for yourself or whatever else it might be. If it's at all possible, I encourage people to plan intentionally for that and talk intentionally about it and see it as an investment. Again, I'm in a job that has a stable income. And it's a good income, so I don't mean to talk over anybody's situations where they may be struggling financially. I'm just trying to speak to my experience and maybe have that be a prompt for other people. But we had to talk very intentionally about where all that was going to go and what we were going to do with it. And thankfully, those discussions, we were very much on the same page. And then in terms of the time, it was one of those things of like, look, the boys are down, I'll do the dishes, you go do an hour of ERP and CBT exercises. And she did those things. I think looking back, though, we would both say that there was some additional strain that came with that that came with those extra household responsibilities and even just the time not spent together. Definitely worth the short-term, long-term, but I can't deny that that was a stressful period. Right. And you think about, you know, as parents, especially in those younger, earlier days when the kid naps, either you want to nap or you want to rest because you're giving so much of yourself. And so saying, I'm going to do chores and you're going to do your own chores through the therapy uh it's hard because you're in survival mode really but when you look at it you have to kind of do a cost-benefit analysis and you're like i'm in survival mode but am i gonna make any movement on these thoughts because i'm like constantly fighting this kind of fatalistic thought that this is going to be it so it's really really hard there's absolutely no denying that it's hard and you know, having some looking at the practicalities of how you implement or even practice some of the ERP homework, whether the kids are sleeping or not, or they go through a growth spurt and now they're not sleeping or they just, you know, they, they're reliable in their routine. And yet there's a little bit of a wild card that also, and then it changes. Yeah, oh, yeah. then it changes. Yeah. yeah. Just when you get it down, you're like, yeah, I got this. And it changes on you. And you're like, great. So, yeah, I mean, those practicalities of being able to implement some of the practice of the ERP homework at home, especially during like the shutdown where you guys aren't getting space from each other through the, you know, huge, huge chunk of time through COVID. So yeah, that can be really, really hard. Yeah, it absolutely can be. And again, I just look back on it now and and if people ask about it, I generally say like, just approach with intention, Mm -hmm. discuss how things are going and even plans that you're going to make. 
over a period of time, not even necessarily with a set intention. I don't think it's healthy, for example, like my OCD to be the topic of every conversation we have. Uh, and I think it's also important that in some of those conversations, even if you develop phrases of like, one of my obsessions is spiraling right now, I actually just need a minute and be able to express that clearly, like that's okay. And then as things start to become clearer and improve, having some expectation of what is and is not tolerable from a family perspective is important as well. And it's not the worst thing for family members to nudge, not push or yell or berate because, and my wife never did that. I'm not implying that, but it's important. And I think sometimes necessary to have that nudge, not to stay in maladaptive patterns. And when you love and care for somebody, it can be very easy not to want to push them out of their comfort zones. And, and sometimes just take some of that suffering away. But again, we've talked about it a few times, short-term, long-term, the early suffering is important in, in a lot of ways. So it adds another dynamic uh, to, to a marriage or to any relationship, really. Again, I'm very, very grateful that we made it through that. And I think that now, if I had to characterize relationship OCD for me, and again, I tell people this because I think it's important to hear it's easy to get intrusive thoughts about what an argument means, or it's easy to get intrusive thoughts about just the longevity of your relationship. And like, I'm not saying that I've doubted my relationship with my wife, but I have definitely had some times where we're debating over something or we have an argument and it can be, well, what does this mean? You know, what are the long-term implications of this? What does this really mean? Is she really saying this? Is she really saying that? And she right. once said to me, like, I can't argue with you when half the argument is in your head. Yeah. You know, yeah. she said, if, if you articulate it, then we can talk. It's no problem, but you have to articulate to you, even if it means writing it out and then coming back with what you want to say after that. So that was one of those kind of pressure make diamond situations, right? And again, a big part of it too, is that everybody will make adjustments and it's okay to expect that of a partner too, to say that like, this is what I'm going through and this is what I need from you in terms of support just important that it's a two-way street because I definitely communicated to my wife in terms of what I need and how that works for me. And she did as well. So yeah. uh, I, I do not think we have it down perfect yet. We still have, I still have half the argument in my head sometimes. I still have intrusive thoughts that I will sometimes spin on and then express later. We are not perfect with it by any means, but there's definitely awareness and a willingness to talk. And that goes a long way. Yeah. yeah. And that's the beauty. It doesn't have to be perfect. OCD demands perfection. OCD demands delivery of the compulsions and the assurance, but realizing you don't have to be perfect in that. And that is hard as a recovering perfectionist <laughs> myself. I can say it's hard, but it's but there's a lot of beauty and freedom in realizing that you don't have to be perfect within that. So yes. if you were to go talk to yourself, Jason, back when the twins were born and say, you know, if I could tell you one thing, like one thing would wrap it up. But if I could tell you something and, and speak into this situation that you're experiencing now, what would you say to yourself? I would say don't think so rigidly about any aspect of parenting or OCD. That's really what I would say. And the reason I say that is I had that first couple months of just trying to tough things out. Of, and, I, and I was a very rigid thinker in terms of, this is how other people are going to react to me. None, never mind that I didn't even test that theory. Right. Uh, but also like, I'm a provider. I have to tough through this, uh, you know, this, or even um, if I'm going to get help, this is the way I'm going to get help. This is the way I have to deal with it. This is who I'm going to tell. And even in terms of how that played into my expectations of parenting and being able to roll with the uncertainty of it and accepting a certain loss of control in my life, a healthy loss of control, but certainly a loss of control. 
was a rich thinker about all those things, largely based in anxiety. And it never came from, I've never doubted even for a second how much I care for my family, but it definitely, those early times were hard. And I wasn't happy at some of those times at a time when you really feel like you're supposed to be happy. But I was even rigidly thinking about that. And it was a source of frustration of like, I'm exhausted. I'm not happy. I don't love every second of this. That's a problem. I should be happy right now. So I would just say, ease up on the rigid thinking and talk to folks who will help you learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. Because there's nothing more frustrating to somebody with an anxiety disorder, any mental disorder than hearing things like, well, don't let it bother you. Just learn not to do it. Right. Just calm, just calm down. It's like nobody has ever calmed down by being told to calm down. Right. Right. So, you know, all those things were just, were forms of rigid thinking. Yeah. They, They really were. And I think looking back, if I could have accepted that, uh, Hey, this is something that's happening right now. We're a family. We're going to support each other with this. And this actually is really, really hard raising twins and that's okay. And Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I'm experiencing significant intrusive thoughts and compulsions, but I'm not, you think of any number of ways that it could be worse. And then you're not so hard on yourself. A really good analogy that I like or example rather is, you know, you ask yourself, okay, what are the ways that my mental health and my behavior could improve? But then also what are the number of ways that it could be worse, right? Uh, Generally speaking, the ways that it could be worse are going to be much, much, much longer. And I didn't have any of those thought processes. I was just too rigid of a thinker during those early days. And so that would by far be my biggest piece of advice, but just making sure that you talk to somebody who can really show you how to do that. Because I don't think personally that it is natural and innate if you have had undiagnosed symptoms your whole life. It's okay to be explicitly taught those things. Again, thinking flexibly, right? Right. So that's my biggest piece of advice by far. Yeah. And, you know, a note I have here from just going through your book, you had talked about, you know, there are some aspects of OCD that help make you successful in what you do. And you think if I'm changing the way I think about things, am I going to still be able to be successful? But some, one of the takeaways I got from when you were writing about that is you mentioned, actually, OCD makes you more rigid in all other areas of your life. And so really being able to go into that flexibility, which can feel very scary, very vulnerable, but also very freeing once you get some of that mental flexibility around how you don't have to change everything about who you are, you're actually going to gain a lot more by not being as rigid in all these other areas of your life. Yeah. The model that my therapist and I always worked on was called harm reduction, Mm -hmm. right? So it's not a complete black and white mitigation of all symptoms. It's understanding what they are, where they come up, and then reducing the harm that they cause, often to very minimal levels. And that's really, really important distinction to make because it can give people, I think, distorted perceptions of what Mm -hmm. mental health looks like. (laughs) And, and I often tell people like therapy didn't alter my core being right down to the fundamentals of who I am. I haven't changed jobs. I'm still largely the same person in lots of ways, but I absolutely have a different perspective on my mental health, on the nature of my thoughts and on how to manage them. And that affects the way that I manage other conflicts. And all those concerns that I had about if I'm not this person, who am I going to be? Am I going to lose my creativity? Am I going to lose this? Am I going to lose my attention to detail? No, 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 no. If anything, I've actually just freed up a fair bit of mental energy for other things because I'm not stuck in that all the time. So yeah, and and that's again why I go back to confront rigid thinking, ideally with help, 
And yeah, that's what I hope the book and this wonderful conversation will do too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the book is called OC Dad, Learning to Be a Parent with a Mental Health Disorder. It's yes. available on Amazon. I noticed on your website, you even have some support small businesses, some bookstores that are selling the book. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, yep, it's on it's on most major book providers. So it's on uh, like Chapters Indigo, Amazon. I always tell if you're looking for the quick digital option and you want to order it online, Amazon, Canada, US, UK, it's all there. It's on Barnes & Noble, Google Books, Apple Books, Kobo, all that kind of thing. Great. I live in the greater Toronto area in Ontario. So uh, there's a wonderful bookstore in Burlington, Ontario called Different Drummer. And then another one called King West Books in Hamilton. They're both excellent if you live in those areas, but if you don't, it is available online. And I always tell people like whatever format works, whether it's the blog that helps the OCD resources page, if buying a book is what makes the difference, then that's fantastic. And there's a lot of those things in there that we talked about. And I also go through a lot more of my obsessions and compulsions that I had. I categorize them into sort of my, what I call sort of my family specific <laughs> categories so, so that they get explored a little more in depth. And then I give examples of the actual exercises that I used and the content that I actually put into them. So Again, I'm not a therapist myself, but I do give, you know, kind of word for word as best I can, all the therapeutic techniques that I used and the content that I put into them to hopefully, again, just be a spark for somebody else's healing. So yeah, yeah that's out there if anybody is interested. Yeah, absolutely. And you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram too, by the way. So at Dad, and links to the site and my blog and conversations like this and that kind of thing. That's all up there too. That's great. That's great. And, you know, I think it's, like you said earlier, articulating what's going on, connecting with other people. You mentioned doing some group therapy, also your own individual therapy. Those are huge pieces in recognizing that you're not alone. And mm -hmm. I'm sure that there are people out there listening to this going, oh my, I can relate so much to what he's saying. So thank you for sharing your voice in this capacity as well, because uh, I think it, it's really hard to sometimes pinpoint, you know, wow, in hindsight, I can see that was OCD, but I just thought that was me and I thought that was just something about me and maybe some of my insecurities or, or whatnot and realizing, oh, actually, I have a neurological feedback loop that's happening and I'm not this bad person. I'm not who I, my thoughts don't define who I am. And that's pretty powerful. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for that. I always end each episode with having an intrusive thoughts segment, my little something that people can take with them. Is there a little application or something that you could recommend somebody could do here now, regardless of what resources they have access to, that they could kind of practice on their own to kind of apply some pieces from what we've discussed today? You mean just like a useful exercise yeah. or yeah, an action people can take? Perfect. I always, yep. I always say, write out, write out thoughts the good, bad, and the ugly word for word. It doesn't have to be like dear diary type journaling things. I always tell people you, all you need is either a computer or a pencil and paper, write out your thoughts, write out the ones that are distressing you, write out the ones you're unsure about, put them away for a couple of days and read them again, and then gauge your reactions to them. I can't speak highly enough of that process. You can start off with easy thoughts, or you could get right into some of those distressing thoughts, but Get them onto paper and give yourself the opportunity to think about your thoughts as opposed to just thinking them. Yeah. There, is a dif there is a difference there, and I think that separation is huge. That would be mine. Yeah, and I think it can be cathartic, too, just to get it out. It can be scary, but it can also feel like... Ugh. You know, just get it out there, get it down on paper. Yeah. You know, even people with smartphones now, 
You have a notes app. You can dictate to that. Mm. If you're like, I don't know if I can get through that. You know, there's so many different ways and mediums to be able to do that. So I think that's definitely a great piece that people can use. And they can use their own kind of sud scale, you know, whether it's one to 10, one to 100 and say, like, how intense is this for me? Or is this kind of like a little baby thing in the scale? So, yeah, I think mm -hmm. that's a really great piece. Well, Jason, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much for taking the time for nap time. You guys, we know as parents how precious nap time is. So... <laughs> Thank you for sharing nap time with us. And I know that, you know, so many people are going to be helped by just hearing your perspective on this. Again, OC Dad, learning to be a parent with a mental health disorder is available. You can get it. And on Twitter and on Instagram, you can check out Jason. And so thank you so much for taking the time, Jason. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. Really grateful for it. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, what a privilege it is to hear these stories of courage. And hey, as I told Jason in preparation for this interview, as a therapist, I hear many, many OCD stories. But the sacredness and vulnerability of writing about or speaking out loud the stories OCD wants people to believe is not lost on me. It's hard. And I found Jason's book a really compelling and helpful read that outlined a common sense, relatable approach to diagnosis, treatment, and recovery. It's a resource that I know I'll recommend to others, and I encourage you to check it out too. So check out Jason's website, look for his book on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, you name it, he named it, <laughs> and enjoy. Because our protagonist is real, and he's fighting, and he's winning. We're winning. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit OCDFamilyPodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like OC Dad dropping by the pad. That's right, I went there. And you can too at OCDFamilyPodcast.com. <laughs>